Section 9 of Canada, South America, Central America, Mexico, and the West Indies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matt Stevens. The World Story, Volume 11. Canada, South America, Central America, Mexico, and the West Indies. Edited by Ava March Tappan. Section 9. Champlain and the Imposter Vignon, 1613, by Francis Parkman. In 1611, one of Champlain's company, a young man named Nicolas de Vignon, asked permission to spend a winter with the Algonquins who lived beyond the head of Lake Coulanges. The following year, he returned to Paris, telling a wondrous tale of having discovered a river flowing north and emptying into a great sea. Here he had found, he declared, the wreck of an English ship. His wide-eyed listeners thought that this was surely the remains of Henry Hudson's vessel, and Champlain could hardly wait to set out on a journey of discovery. Under the guidance of Vignon, he reached the cabin of Tessoua, the Algonquin chief. There he stopped to hire canoes for the rest of the journey. The Editor Champlain asked for guidance to the settlements above. It was readily granted. Escorted by his friendly hosts, he advanced beyond the head of Lake Coulange and, landing, saw the unaccustomed sight of pathways through the forest. They led to the clearings and cabin of a chief named Tessoua, who, amazed at the apparition of the white strangers, exclaimed that he must be in a dream. Next, the voyagers crossed to the neighbouring island, then deeply wooded with pine, elm and oak. Here were more desolate clearings, more rude cornfields and bark-built cabins. Here, too, was a cemetery, which excited the wonder of Champlain, for the dead were better cared for than the living. Over each grave a flat tablet of wood was supported on posts, and at one end stood an upright tablet, carved with an intended representation of the features of the deceased. If a chief, the head was adorned with a plume. If a warrior, there were figures near it of a shield, a lance, a war club, and a bow and arrows. If a boy, of a small bow and one arrow. And if a woman or a girl, of a kettle, an earthen pot, a wooden spoon, and a paddle. The whole was decorated with red and yellow paint, and beneath slept the departed, wrapped in a robe of skins, his earthly treasures about him, ready for use in the land of the souls. Tessois was to give a tabaji, or solemn feast, in honour of Champlain, and the chiefs and elders of the island were invited. Runners were sent to summon the guests from neighbouring hamlets, and, on the morrow, Tessois' squaws swept his cabin for the festivity. Then Champlain and his Frenchmen were seated on skins in the place of honour, and the naked guests appeared in quick succession, each with his wooden dish and spoon, and each ejaculating his guttural salute as he stooped at the low door. The spacious cabin was full. The congregated wisdom and prowess of the nations sat expectant on the bare earth. Each long, bare arm thrust forth its dish in turn as the host served out the banquet, in which, as courtesy enjoined, he himself was to have no share. First, a mess of pounded maize, wherein were boiled, without salt, morsels of fish and dark scraps of meat. Then... Fish and flesh broiled on the embers with a kettle of cold water from the river. Champlain, in wise distrust of Ottawa cookery, confined himself to the simpler and less doubtful viands. A few minutes and all alike had vanished, 
the kettles were empty, then pipes were filled, and touched with fire brought in by the duty scores, while the young men who had stood thronged about the entrance now modestly withdrew, and the door was closed for council. First, the pipes were passed to Champlain. Then, for full half an hour, the assembly smoked in silence. At length, when the fitting time was come, he addressed them in a speech in which he declared that, moved by affection, he visited their country to see its richness and its beauty, and to aid them in their wars, and he now begged them to furnish him with four canoes and eight men, to convey him to the country of the Nipissings, a tribe dwelling northward on the lake which bears their name. His audience looked grave, for they were but cold and jealous friends of the Nipissings. For a time they discoursed in murmuring tones among themselves, all smoking meanwhile with redoubled vigour. Then Tessua, chief of these forest republicans, rose and spoke in behalf of all. We always knew you for our best friend among the Frenchmen. We love you like our own children. But why did you break your word with us last year when we all went down to meet you at Montreal to give you presents and go to, with you to war? You were not there, but other Frenchmen were there who abused us. We will never go again. As for the four canoes, you shall have them if you insist upon it. But it grieves us to think of the hardships you must endure. The Nipissings have weak hearts. They are good for nothing in war, but they kill us with charms, and they poison us. Therefore we are on bad terms with them. They will kill you too. Such was the pitch of Tessua's discourse, and in each clause, the conclave responded in unison with an approving grunt. Champlain urged his petition, sought to relieve their tender scruples in his behalf, assured them that he was charm-proof and that he feared no hardships. At length he gained his point. The canoes and the men were promised, and, seeing himself as he thought on the highway to his phantom northern sea, he left his entertainers to their pipes, and with a light heart issued from the close and smoky den to breathe the fresh air of the afternoon. He visited the Indian fields, with their young crops of pumpkins, beans, and French peas, the last a novelty obtained from the traders. Here, Tomas, the interpreter, soon joined him with a countenance of bad news. In the absence of Champlain, the assembly had reconsidered their ascent. The canoes were denied. With a troubled mind, he hastened again to the Hall of Council, and addressed the naked Senate in terms better suited to his exigencies than to their dignity. I thought you were men. I thought you would hold fast to your word. But I find you children, without truth. You call yourselves my friends, yet you break faith with me. Still I would not incommode you, and if you cannot give me four canoes, two will serve. The burden of the reply was, rapids, rocks, cataracts and the wickedness of the Nipissings. This young man, rejoined Champlain, pointing to Vignon, who sat by his side, has been to their country, and did not find the road or the people so bad as you have said. Nicolas, demanded Tessua, did you say that you had been to the Nipissings? The impostor sat mute for a time, then replied, yes I have been there. Hereupon an outcry broke forth from the assembly, and their small, deep-set eyes were turned on him askance, as if, says Champlain, they would have torn and eaten him. You are a liar, returned the unceremonious host. You know very well that you slept here among my children every night and rose again every morning. And if you ever went where you pretend to have gone, it must have been when you were asleep. How can you be so impudent as to lie to your chief, and so wicked as to risk his life among so many dangers? He ought to kill you with tortures worse than those which we kill our enemies. 
Champlain urged him to reply, but he sat motionless and dumb. Then he led him from the cabin and conjured him to declare if, in truth, he had seen the sea of the north. Vignon, with oaths, affirmed that all he had said was true. Returning to the council, Champlain repeated his story, how he had seen the sea, the wreck of an English ship, 80 English scalps, and an English boy, prisoner among the Indians. At this, an outcry rose, louder than before. You are a liar. Which way did you go? By what rivers? By what lakes? Who went with you? Vignon had made a map of his travels, which Champlain now produced, desiring him to explain it to his questioners, but his assurance had failed him and he could not utter a word. Champlain was greatly agitated. His hopes and heart were in the enterprise. His reputation was in a measure at stake. And now, when he thought his triumph so near, he shrank from believing himself the sport of an impudent impostor. The council broke up, the Indians displeased and moody, and he, on his part, full of anxieties and doubts. At length, one of the canoes being ready for departure, the time of decision came, and he called Vignon before him. If you have deceived me, confess it now, and the past shall be forgiven. But if you persist, you will soon be discovered, and then you shall be hanged. Vignon pondered for a moment, then fell on his knees, owned his treachery, and begged for mercy. Champlain broke into a rage, and, unable, as he says, to endure the sight of him, ordered him from his presence, and sent the interpreter after him to make further examination. Vanity, the love of notoriety, and the hope of reward seemed to have been his inducements, for he had, in truth, spent a quiet winter in Tessoua's cabin his nearest approach to the northern sea, and he had flattered himself that he might escape the necessity of guiding his commander to this pretended discovery. The Indians were somewhat exultant. Why did you not listen to the chiefs and warriors instead of believing the lies of this fellow? And they counselled Champlain to have him killed at once, adding that they would save their friends trouble by taking the office upon themselves. No motive remaining for farther advance, the party set forth on their return, attended by a fleet of 40 canoes bound to Montreal for trade. End of section 9. This recording is in the public domain.